Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 18th, 2021, and this is show number 845. Last week when I was debating with the live audience on whether to maybe just wait a day to record to see if my voice came back, Sandy, amongst other people, asked the great question, what if it actually gets worse tomorrow? That's a good thing I listened to her as my voice got progressively worse over the next few days and is now back to, what, maybe 60%. Well, in the middle of the week, Jill from the Northwoods asked if I'd like her to do the read on one of my articles. It's really, really hard to read something written in another person's voice, but these are desperate times, so I took her up on her offer. She'll be telling you about the Coco Power 15.6-inch USB-C display that I bought for Lindsay. I guarantee you, it sounds way better than listening to my voice. Now, next week is when Steve and I will be going to Glacier National Park in Montana with Lindsay and Nolan and our grandchildren for a week. I asked for help with materials, so you'll still have a show on August 1st, and boy, howdy did people come through for us. Bart, Ed Tobias, George Goucher all recorded articles for us, and Alistair recorded three articles. I learned an interesting thing about handing the show off to Alistair. It's the assembly and technical delivery of the show that is scary and stressful for him, and creating content is actually much more joyful. This is actually great because I've got assembly and delivery pretty much down, and it's the content that's hard when I want to play in the great outdoors. If you've been working on a review, still finish it and send it in, and I'll play it in an upcoming episode. I always love listener contributions, so bring it on. Now, we're leaving for Montana on Sunday, July 25th in the morning, which means there will be no live show on Sunday, July 21st. I'm sorry, Sunday, July 25th. Tell your friends, because it just breaks my heart when I open up Discord after a no live show Sunday and I see someone asking, hey, where is everybody? If you're a data nerd, you really, really need to get solar. When last we left our heroes, our solar installation had just been completed. To review, we had 22 370-watt solar panels installed, giving us a maximum theoretical instantaneous power generation of 8.14 kilowatts. The little inverters on the back of each panel do some digital switching to convert to the 240-volt standard we have in the United States, and that conversion, plus the combining of all the inverters, has about a 20% loss. So doing a little math that won't even scare David Roth, 80% of our theoretical max of 8.14 kilowatts gives an actual maximum of 6.5 kilowatts of instantaneous power generation, which is what we see when our panels are fully illuminated at midday. Knowing the maximum power you can actually create under perfect conditions helps you to understand the data you can see on the different tools for monitoring your solar power. Kilowatts, as I mentioned, is a measure of instantaneous power. If you look at your electric bill, you won't see anything about kilowatts. Instead, you'll see that you're charged by the kilowatt hour. A kilowatt hour is the measure of energy and is the power generated or consumed averaged over an entire hour. Now, my brain thinks it would make more sense to call this kilowatts per hour, but this is brought to you by the same electrical engineers who say that the electrons go one way, so the current goes in the opposite direction. They basically hate us all. Our solar system is made by a company called Enphase, but they call their solar monitoring app Enlighten. I think their goal is to make sure you can't possibly remember the name of the app when searching for it on your phone. You can also access your solar data via Enphase's web interface. You can just imagine how many times Steve and I refreshed our screens within the first couple of days trying to see data from our solar panels. The experience was very disappointing. Our Enphase system came with a cellular modem installed, which they told us was an advantage over doing Wi-Fi. If your Wi-Fi is dodgy where the electrical panel is installed, then cellular would be an advantage. But if you have good Wi-Fi, it's definitely a disadvantage. The huge downside of the cellular connection is that the data uploads at a very infrequent rate. Sometimes it would be 40 minutes in between updates. I think we saw well over an hour of of between updates once or twice, and it definitely wasn't refreshing at the rate Steve and I wanted. We were at Lindsay's house right after our solar system got turned on, and we were really frustrated by the lack of instant gratification. When Steve got home, Steve used the app to connect our, our system to Wi-Fi, and finally we had updates every 15 minutes, which was much more gratifying to watch. The Enphase system has three major tabs. 
On the status tab for a current day, you can see the peak power, the total energy produced for the day, and see how it compares to the day before. Because they think you're a moron, they show you how many hours you could have burned a 100-watt light bulb for the energy you generated. There's a hint. It's the kilowatt hours you generated divided by 100. It's cute, and it was fun the first time I saw it, but after the first time, I think it's kind of wasted space on the screen. The Energy tab on the Enphase app is where the real fun is. You get an hourly bar graph for the day you've chosen with an overlay line of the previous day if you like. It's fun to compare day to day. The screenshot I put in the show notes illustrates a day where we had a really nice curve hitting the peak of our system, but then a brief moment of clouds a little bit before 6 p.m. The overlay of the previous day shows a huge dip down in energy production around 1 p.m. Now, the last tab will be uninteresting 99% of the time, and yet it's really important to check regularly, and that's the Array tab. When you view the Array, you see all of your solar panels in their physical orientation on your roof, and you can see how much energy each panel or slash inverter has created over the day. Inverters evidently fail from time to time, so it's important to glance at this tab regularly. Both Lindsay and Kyle had inverters fail on their systems, and their frequency of monitoring the status of their inverters directly correlated to how much money they spent buying electricity instead of generating it themselves. The Array Health tab lets you see at a glance whether every inverter is operating. In the morning, each little solar panel graphic is shown in dark blue, and as it gets filled in with sunlight during the day, it turns to a lighter and lighter shade of blue. At midday, our panels on the east roof are a darker blue than the ones on the south roof, and the panel shaded by the chimney in the morning is a darker blue as well. While the color-changing aspect is useful for situational awareness of the health of the array, the numbers on the chart require math to interpret. Instead of showing the instantaneous power in kilowatts, the panels show the energy in watt-hours that they have generated over the elapsed time of the current day. This allows you to view your panels to see which ones are giving you the most benefit, which is most useful if you took a, uh, take a look at them after the entire day has passed. The most interesting thing we've learned so far is that our west-facing panels are actually generating more per panel than our south-facing panels. Living near the coast in California, the most common weather forecast is early morning low clouds followed by hazy afternoon sunshine. In other words, the sun has a clearer shot at our panels in the afternoon than during earlier parts of the day. Those three tabs are pretty much all you can get with the Enlighten app. Those three tabs are pretty much all you can get with the Enlighten app. In settings, you can turn on the currency equivalent so you can see how much money you're saving by generating the energy. But you can only put in one rate for your electricity cost per kilowatt hour. Now, maybe you live in a place where time of use isn't a thing, but we have a super complex system of electricity cost as a function of time, day, and season. Now, it's designed to encourage you to do things like not run your dishwasher or charge your electric vehicle between 5 and 8 p.m. when their load is the highest. Now, I'm not against it, but it's super complicated. In the summer, we have peak, off-peak, and mid-peak hours, where mid-peak only exists on weekends. In winter, we have off-peak, super off-peak, and mid-peak, but it's a full seven days a week. I definitely won't dig deeper into these details, but the delta between these rates can be as much as 28%. In other words, the Enphase app allowing us to only type in one number for our cost per kilowatt hour is pretty much useless. As cool as it is to see how much solar energy we're collecting after, you know, after you spend a lot of money on panels, you really want to be able to compare it to how much you're consuming. Did I buy enough panels? Did I buy too few? Will I really generate more energy than I consume? The only way we had to answer this question was to stand at the electric meter and wait until the display showed us the net power going back to the grid that's generated minus consumed. It's a bit tedious to stand outside looking at the meter, and it seemed like there should be a better way. Around this time, listener and actual real-life friend from my work days, Jamie Cox, wrote a comment on my blog post that he has the same solar system we got, and he started to, get a, to give us some advice. We took the discussion offline to email as it was getting pretty detailed on the blog, and pretty soon Steve and Jamie were firing off photos and graphs and getting super nerdy. I love it when my friends get to know Steve, and this was clearly two people talking the same language. The main thing we learned from Jamie was a suggestion that we look into buying a Sense Solar. You may remember that at CES in 2020, I interviewed Scott Taylor, VP of Business Development, about their Sense Electricity Usage Monitor. 
The device we saw at CES plugs into the breaker on your electrical panel and then has two clips that encircle the black and red main wires coming out of your main electrical circuit breaker. As Scott explained it to me at CES, the cool thing that Sense does is monitor your energy usage and it builds a profile of how much energy individual devices in your house are using. Evidently, you know, like two different TV models will actually have different signatures for the waveforms of their electrical usage, allowing Sense to even tell which TV is drawing how much energy. I was ready to buy one right away after CES, but a few people who had installed Sense gave me feedback and said that the machine learning model to figure out which devices, you know, which, which ones were which, didn't really work as well as they sounded. Now, whether or not Sense does a good job of figuring out which devices are which, Jamie gave us a good reason to consider buying the solar version of Sense. He explained that if you buy the solar model, you can get that elusive metric we really want a comparison of not just our generated energy, but our consumed energy as well. Not only that, the graphs Jamie showed us were practically real-time, not this silly every 15-minute sampling nonsense we were getting from the Enlighten, the Enlighten app. The Sense Energy Monitor with solar runs $350 on Amazon right now. The Sense with solar comes with four clips, two to encircle your solar main wires and two to encircle your main breaker wires. It also comes with the Sense Monitor, which is a small orange box that reads the current traveling through those wires, computes the generated and consumed power, and then transmits that data to the cloud. The data being sent to the cloud allows you to access the information from a dedicated mobile app or the web. The instructions for Sense suggest an electrician install the device as you're connecting into your breakers and turning off power. As handy as Steve is with this stuff, even he had an electrician help us hook it up, and he was glad he invested the money in having it done correctly. As soon as the power and solar were flipped back on, we had instant gratification with our Sense Solar. The number of graphs with clear, actionable information is fantastic. From talking to Jamie, it sounds like Sense takes literally months to populate with good information about how much power your individual devices are using. In a few days of watching it, it has found two refrigerators, and now it just found our garage door, so that's something. However, we found an easier way to measure the impact of the different devices. Turn them on and off. Since you've got almost real-time information from Sense, you can tell which device is doing what profile. Steve turned the oven on to broil, and we saw a massive spike. Our baseline total house power was running about 1,000 watts at the time, and when he flipped on the oven to preheat it for just a few seconds, the graph dramatically jumped up to 1,900 watts. Seriously, our whole house was using half of what the oven wanted all by itself. The Sense interface lets you pinch to zoom in and out, so you can obsessively watch the graph second by second, or pinch in and see a whole day on screen at once. Looking at the entire day, I can easily identify the spikes in power usage. One day we ran the dishwasher, which turns on the heating element in two different phases, and I can see both peaks at around 1.2 kilowatts. And then I can see a giant peak for when Steve was roasting asparagus for me in the oven. A cool part of Sense Solar is that the energy consumed is superimposed on a graph of our energy generation. In a very rare turn of events, I had the opportunity to watch our solar production while it was actually raining in July in Southern California. It was a freak summer storm, lasted a couple of hours, during which we got a massive 0.02 inches of rain. Now, while that's not anything to write a blog post about, I discovered something else cool I can do with the Sense app. While looking at the energy graphs, in the upper left, there's a little sun icon showing the instantaneous power generation. I noticed that while it was still fully overcast, it said we were generating 1,117 watts of power. In a moment of childlike exploration, I tapped on the sun icon and discovered possibly my favorite graphic in the Sense app. It's a little graphic showing the power traveling between three icons, a little house, a little sun, and an electrical tower representing the grid. It showed that while it was completely overcast, we were generating 1,117 watts of power, and of that, 1,006 watts was powering our home, and the remaining 111 watts was going back to the grid. The little animated arrows, it had little animated arrows showing the energy flow into our home and the grid, and it made me so happy. This is what it's all about. Now, I mentioned earlier that we live where our solar, our, our energy charges depend on the time of use. 
reminds me of the 1990s when cell phone bills were broken down by time of day. If you're too young to know about this, we actually paid by the minute of talk time, and we paid a different rate during the day, during the evening, on weekends. If it was a Thursday on a month with an R in it, you'd pay at a different rate. It was a big mess. But anyway, back to time of use billing for electricity. Enlighten only allowed us to enter one single number for our cost per kilowatt, but Sense has a section where you can type in as many separate rates as you want. I can't believe Steve's dedication. He typed in all eight sets of times, dates, seasons, and costs. And I'm so glad he did because now we've got a graph that's even cooler than everything else. Below my favorite animation showing how much energy you're putting back into the grid or taking out of the grid, there's a usage graph by day, week, month, year, or bill. The graph is a kind of a cartoony representation of our up-to-the-minute graph, but below that it has a bunch of metrics. For the day, I can see our total solar production, energy usage, how much went into the grid during the day, and how much we took from the grid across the entire day. This is cool because it takes into account the energy we burned, that we burned through when the sun was gone, as well as when we were helping to power the grid. I can even see our net production. One night, I happened to wake up around 3 in the morning, and I discovered the, that my phone was in its charger and still turned on showing the usage graphs in the Sense app. This was a lucky accident because I was able to find out how much energy we're consuming when we're doing absolutely nothing. They call this the vampire load, the cost of all the devices that are sitting in ready to turn on because we're too impatient to wait a minute mode. You know, TVs, DVRs, and all devices with a little light on them, they're all contributing to this baseline level. It wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. We burn a little over 600 watts when we're sleeping. By the way, David, that's equivalent to having six 100-watt light bulbs turned on. The graphs we looked at for the first few days didn't include charging either of our cars. Now, we don't charge very often because we don't drive very much. But we were about to drive to San Diego, so I plugged in Steve's Tesla Model Y. He already had 200 miles of charge available, so I was adding only around 100 miles to charge it to 100%. Battery charging gets very inefficient when you're past about 65% charge, so that last 100 miles took about two, two and a half hours. During that time, we were able to see from Sense that our energy usage went up by 9,000 watts while the car was charging. Now the question is whether our solar generation was enough to cover that and our normal usage. I was impatient to get the blog post up, and I didn't want to wait till the end of the day, and I decided to do a little bit of math. 9,000 watts times 2.5 hours is 22.5 kilowatt hours. That sounds about right, because we have 75 kilowatt batteries, I'll get it right, 75 kilowatt hour batteries in our Teslas, and I was charging it up by about a third. So 22.5, that's about right. So let's see if we have enough 20 if we have 22.5 kilowatt hours to spare in our solar generation. Now here's the amazing part. We had a pretty good day of solar generation at close to 50 kilowatt hours and at the end of the day, even with charging our electric vehicle up 100 miles, we still generated more power than we consumed. It wasn't much, but we actually put in 2.2 kilowatt hours back into the grid. I was amazed by that. I should say, we sized our solar panel arrays to not only cover our energy needs, including charging the cars, but we're also planning on having central air conditioning installed, and we wanted to make sure we had a net zero impact on the grid. With Sense Solar, we'll actually be able to tell whether we've succeeded at that goal without having to wait till the end of the month when we see the bill. I entitled the article, Solar is for Data Nerds, and I think I've supported that statement by my level of enthusiasm for all of these numbers. I can prove it one more way. At 4.15 p.m. on the first day, while we've been using Sense to monitor our solar array and energy usage, both Steve and my iPhones were dead. Okay, let's take a break from my voice and listen to Jill from the Northwoods instead. Hi, everyone. This is Jill from the Northwoods. A year ago, Allison told you about the 2.5 2K USB-C portable display from a company called EOYO. And she wanted just a bit more screen real estate while doing her live show. And for when she traveled, and a USB-C display sounded like the perfect tool for the job. This was before she got her Pro Display XDR. Most of the USB-C displays out there at an affordable price are 1080p. But she is kind of a screen resolution snob. So she chose the EOYO 
with the 2K instead of the 1080p on larger displays. She didn't need the larger display. She figured that a tiny display at a high resolution was better than a big display at a lower resolution. While the tiny 12.5-inch size was exactly what she wanted and technically is super high resolution, in reality, 2K on that size is way overkill, making everything too tiny to read. She always lowers the resolution to 1080p when she uses it. 1080p is pretty janky looking to her, but at least the text is big enough to read. Additionally, the display's contrast and brightness aren't great. You also have to change the contrast and brightness every single time you use it, with an annoying interface because it defaults to so dim you can barely see it. She still gets use out of it, but she's not sure that she would recommend it to anyone. Luckily, there's no danger of her recommending it anyway, as Yoyo doesn't make that model any longer. She brought the Yoyo display to Lindsay's house for the 4th of July weekend because she was planning on recording the Nozilla cast while she was there. This was definitely a case where she truly needed the extra screen real estate. It's much easier to have the audio recording app Hindenburg on a separate display while the show notes are on her MacBook Pro display. While setting it up, Lindsay mentioned that a display like that would be really handy for her upcoming week-long business trip. Allison offered to let her borrow it for her trip. They tested it with her Windows PC that had a USB-C, and it worked just as it does with the Mac. But then she realized she forgot the little stand that holds it upright. The big advantage to these portable USB-C displays is they are just a slab of glass, like an iPad, only thinner. So without the stand, the display's usefulness would be dramatically diminished. They tried to use a stand from a decorative plate and a cookbook stand, and while they worked, they were thick and bulky, which is the last thing you want when packing for a trip. So you know what Allison had to do, right? She had to buy her a better one. The good news is there's a lot of options out there for portable USB-C displays. And a quick sort by highest rated led her to choose the Cocopar 2021 Upgrade 15.6 inch 1080p FHD HDR FreeSync Ultra Slim USB-C portable display with kickstand, dual Type-C, mini HDMI, dual speakers for laptop, PC, Mac, Surface, Xbox, PS4s, Switch, and phone. So we'll shorten the name to Cocopar for the sake of brevity. The important bits in that SEO name are the 15.6, 1080p, it claims to be an HDR display, and of course, USB-C. The price was $204, which was in line with many of the other like-spec USB-C displays she considered. So her spoiler here is that she thinks it's a great display, and she kind of wished it was hers. The Cocopar display sports two USB-C ports, both of which support video, audio, and power. So when the display is plugged into a Mac or PC or USB-C iPad, like the iPad Pro, it is bus-powered, which means it doesn't require a power supply, which is exactly what you want from a monitor on the go. Allison started plugging it into the USB-C on her 16-inch 2019 MacBook Pro and the display came up immediately. It was bright, it had good contrast, and it was easily controllable via the display system preference pane on the Mac. Her eyes bled a little bit because it's 1920 by 1080, but it really does look so much better than the tiny EOYO. She said that she wants to mention that you can buy a Cocopar display in 4K instead of 1080p, but the price for the 15.6 inch jumps from $204 to $520. If you're going to use it all the time for your primary external display, it might be worth that much money if space is at a premium. But for the occasional use around the house, business travel, or vacation, it sounds a bit steep. If 15.6 inch is too big for you, Cocopar also sells a 13.3 inch 1080p version, but you'll only save $14 to go for the smaller display. 
And remember how Allison forgot to bring the little plastic stand for the yo-yo when she took it to Lindsay's house? No problem with that on the Cocoa Par because of its built-in kickstand, much like the Microsoft Surface tablet. It's even continuously adjustable up to 45 degrees. And the display and the kickstand have little rubber strips on them so it doesn't slide around. Even with the kickstand, the display at its thickest is less than a quarter of an inch thick. She loves that kickstand. Lindsay has a USB-C enabled Dell laptop for work. And the Coco Par display worked perfectly with it as well. She was able to control the resolution and the location left and right with the display setting in Windows. She was delighted by how easy it was to set up and that it was powered from the laptop. That was an advantage because she just had the battery replaced in her work laptop, so she's got charged to burn. Next up, Allison wanted to test the Coco Par with her personal 2015 13-inch MacBook Pro, which doesn't have USB-C. The Coco Par also has a mini HDMI connector and comes with a mini to full-size HDMI cable, which allows the MacBook Pro to drive the display. HDMI does not support power delivery, but the CocoPar comes with a USB-C to USB-A cable and a little USB-A charger block. You can connect the charger block to the display's second USB-C connector to deliver the power it needs. Definitely not as elegant as a single USB-C cable, but it's great that it works with older devices without USB-C. She tested the Cocoa Par with her 12.9-inch iPad Pro, and it worked perfectly, where perfection is defined as just as dumb as you would expect, because the iPad only supports screen mirroring. She supposes a use case for this might be where you wanted to show someone a screen of your iPad, but they were on the opposite side of the table. Other than that, she truly doesn't know why Apple bothers to support just screen mirroring. The Cocoa Par display can be used with the Nintendo Switch, which might be useful for taking on a vacation or for downtime on a business trip. The Switch does not support power delivery over USB-C, so you will need an external power supply for this setup. The instructions say to use the original Switch power supply and cable, but the included USB-A charger works just fine. Allison read online that the Switch is pretty particular about power, so make your own decision about that. She tested the CocoPar display with Lindsay's Nintendo Switch, and it showed the Switch interface, but the joystick and buttons on the Switch didn't function. Oddly, she was able to take a screenshot and launch into one game, but not play anything. Allison posted a question about this on the Amazon sale page for CocoPar, and a lovely user responded that you have to use an external controller when the Switch is plugged into the display. She took the Cocoa Par to Kyle's house and tested it with his Switch. And sure enough, removing the controller from the side of the Switch allowed it to function perfectly with the big display. She asked Kyle whether he thought that it would be an advantage to use it this way, and his answer was interesting. He pointed out that if you're alone, you'd be holding the Nintendo Switch with its 6.2-inch screen in your hands, so it wouldn't be much smaller than the perceived screen size of a 15.6-inch screen sitting on a table, if it's far enough away. Then he contemplated whether it would be helpful when playing with other people, but wondered why you wouldn't just connect the Switch to a TV. Connection to a TV is only possible if you total along the Switch dock, which is kind of bulky. If you're bringing the 15.6-inch display to use along with your laptop, then maybe it would be fun also to use with the Switch. Probably not a compelling reason to buy a USB-C display on its own, but it might be handy. The CocoPar display has a headphone jack and built-in speakers. Allison tested the speakers, and as you might expect, the sound was unimpressive. She would put them in the, if your internal speakers are broken, you'll be able to hear through them category. As she mentioned, controlling things like brightness and contrast on her 12.5-inch Eoyo is really annoying. There's something really unintuitive about the interface, and she often would just give up on it because it got stuck in a mode where she couldn't move between the options. It took her a long time to remember the exact sequence to open up the settings, switch to brightness, and crank it up to something she could see every single time she used the device. 
In contrast, all puns intentional, the on-screen control on the Cocopar are really easy to access and use. On the right side of the kickstand, there's a little toggle switch that rotates up and down and one button. If you click in on the toggle, the on-screen menu comes up. Flip it up and down to navigate to the menu you want, and then click in to select and modify. The button is used to back out of a menu. That back out of a menu button is what Iyoyo is missing. The better news is that she tested most of the screen settings on the Cocopar, and the default at which it comes up automatically was already great. Unlike the Iyoyo, she wouldn't need to be jumping in and out of these menus very often. But if she needed to, she knew it won't be an experimental effort to figure it out every time. She already mentioned that the Cocopar ships with a USB-C to USB-C cable, a USB-C to USB-A cable, and a power adapter, as well as a mini HDMI to HDMI cable. In addition, it comes with not one, but two screen protectors and a cleaning cloth to prepare the display. The display is a matte finish, but the screen protectors are glossy. The Cocopar includes a really nice carrying sleeve. It's gray woven fabric with a lovely fuzzy soft interior. The sleeve has a half-height zippered pocket that easily holds all the included cables and a USB-A power adapter. She wanted to take a photo of the display, but it's not really that interesting to look at a photo straight on. So she decided to put it in context and take a photo with it plugged into her 16-inch MacBook Pro. She was already sitting at her desk, and the 32-inch Pro Display XDR was already plugged into it, and she was too lazy to go elsewhere. Then she realized that it actually looked kind of cool. Then it occurred to her, wouldn't it be fun to have the 12.6-inch Yo-Yo display plugged in too? And then she realized the 12.9 iPad Pro was right there, so to keep it from feeling left out, she added it via sidecar. The result is really cool. Her MacBook Pro driving five displays at once, one of which is 6K. She really should have added up all the pixels when she plugged them in. She put a photo of them all running simultaneously in the show notes. She had to admit that the MacBook Pro struggled just a smidge when trying to arrange the displays in the system preferences. She got a spinning pizza wheel for a bit, and every change she made in the display arrangement caused all five displays to blank out. She also learned something new that she never knew before. If you have two displays arranged, they always have to touch each other in the arrangement section. But if you have three or more, a given pair can be shown as not touching each other, even if you show them side by side or up and down from each other. When there's a gap like that, you can simply move a cursor between them. At first, I was having to travel through the XDR display to get from one of the smaller displays to another. She was so entertained by rearranging the displays that she took a screenshot to show you where she ended up. She also figured out something else, that when you have five displays running off of one computer, you're simply never going to find the cursor. She wiggled it like crazy, but simply couldn't find it. She finally found it and then made it huge so she could see while she was playing. But let's bottom line the Cocopar 15.6-inch USB-C display. She can't give any opinion on the longevity of this display, but her initial impressions are really good. If you're looking for an easy-to-set-up and easy-to-store external display because you go to any kind of temporary workspace, even your kitchen, she can definitely recommend the Cocopar 1080p 15.6-inch USB-C display. There are a lot of really great options out there that are probably just as good, so if this model isn't what you need, she bets that you can find something that would be equally great. But she would look for a multiple USB-C charge slash data port, a nice included kickstand, a nice case, and if you don't have USB-C on your devices, you want to make sure it comes with a mini HDMI and an included charger block and cable. For $204, she thinks the Cocopar is a fantastic choice. And if she had to do it over again, she would buy this display instead of the 2.5-inch 
2K-E-O-Yo. Thank you so much for recording that, Jill. That was fantastic. And I'm sure it was a pleasant respite for the listeners' ears from my raspy voice. You know, Alistair was kidding me this week that I sound like one of Marge Simpson's three-pack-a-day smoker sisters, Patty and Selma. <laughs> He's such a good friend. Anyway, if you'd like more of Jill's wonderful content, I can highly recommend her fabulous podcast called Start With Small Steps Podcast. You can find that at smallstepspod.com or, of course, in your podcatcher of choice. In part one of my screencasting tip series, I talked about how to set yourself up for a successful recording. In part two, I explained some best practices that I found helped me create better screencasts. Now we're going to get a lot more detailed about the recording and editing process. I've tried to keep these tips as app independent as possible, and I'm still going to strive for that. But some of what I'm going to be talking about today will be specific solutions available in using ScreenFlow on the Mac. If you're going to be doing a lot of video recordings, I highly recommend memorizing as many keyboard shortcuts as you possibly can. Now, I know not everyone is wired for keyboard shortcuts, but if you are, it's a great way to speed up recording and editing. I put a screenshot in the show notes of the shortcuts preferences for ScreenFlow in which you can see a really small scroll bar, and I put it in there to demonstrate that there are a lot of keyboard shortcuts in ScreenFlow. No matter what tool you're using, try to train your brain and fingers to use these shortcuts. I'd like to give a few examples of just a couple of the ones that I use all the time in ScreenFlow. In ScreenFlow, you can use the razor blade icon in the bottom left of the screen to slice a recording, but you have to switch back to the arrow to go back to selecting. Instead, learn that the T key splits whatever tracks are selected right at the playhead. If you don't select any tracks, the, key, the T key splits all of your tracks. When you split with the T, the bit to the left of your playhead will be selected and it'll be outlined in yellow, so you can quickly hit the delete key to get rid of it. If you want to split but then delete the bit after the split, simply hold down the shift key with the T, and again, it'll split, but the part of the clip to the right will be selected and it'll be ready to hit delete. I'm still working that one into my muscle memory, but I love it when I do remember. I definitely use the T key all the time. It's that shift T that I seem to forget. Sadly, deleting part of your recording will be the thing you do more than anything else you do in editing. ScreenFlow has a command called a ripple delete. In a ripple delete, you select a region to be deleted, but then all of the video and audio tracks to the right will slide over to fill in that gap you just created when you deleted that section. Other recording apps have this feature built in as well, but here's how I do it in ScreenFlow. I click at the start point, and I hold down the shift key while moving the playhead to the right until I get to where I want to end my selection. If I click and drag the playhead, it'll play back the audio as I scrub so I can be sure to get my cursor right where I want it. My click and drag steps are marking what are called the in and out points in ScreenFlow. Now Don prefers to use the, screen, the keyboard shortcuts I and O to mark those in and out points rather than clicking and dragging, but I find it harder to get my cursor placed exactly correct the, that way, so I use the click and drag method. If you simply hit the delete key after making your selection, the selection will be deleted, but it's going to leave a gap in your recording. Now if that's not the desired behavior, Command Delete executes the Ripple Delete I was talking about. I probably use Ripple Delete 50 to 100 times in a recording, so it's well worth learning that particular keystroke. Now let's talk about transitions. I try to avoid making a lot of video transitions, but there's one part of my tutorials where I use them extensively. I do an introduction to the show where I have white text that appears on a black background as I explain the tool I'm going to demonstrate. I like to give people some background, some understanding of the problem it's going to solve. I like these white text on black background areas to fade in as I describe each feature and then fade out when that section is complete. To add a fade in or fade out, you can select the track and a little gear will show at the beginning of the track. You can select that gear and then select Add Starting or Ending Transitions. I do these transitions all the time and reaching all the way over to the trackpad and then dragging my cursor to the correct track and then selecting that teeny tiny little gear and dragging all the way down to the add transition sections is a huge waste of time. Instead, if I want a starting transition, I simply hold down command option comma for an ending transition. I use command option period. I usually want both a starting and ending transition. So I hold down command option and then I hit comma, period, one after another. When I was doing the screenshot for the show notes, though, I noticed there's a keystroke to add both, which is command option backslash. 
We'll see if I remember that one. Anyway, I've got it down to, to pretty good muscle memory with the other way of doing it. But if you're learning now, learn command option backslash. Now, whether you use the slow and plodding cursor selection or use the efficient keyboard shortcut, you'll get the default transition applied to your selected clip or clips. In ScreenFlow's preferences, you can set the default time for transitions and other effects. It's worth familiarizing yourself with these preferences, or you'll find yourself constantly changing the duration every single time because the default you have is too long or too short for your liking. Now, if you're doing long-form tutorials as we do on Screencast Online, I highly recommend adding chapter marks. Your tutorials will become a more valuable resource if your viewers can come back later to review a specific feature you taught by jumping to that chapter mark. In ScreenFlow, I learned pretty quickly the keystroke to put in a chapter mark was a backtick. That's the character under the tilde in the upper left on an English keyboard, on an American keyboard, I should say. Now, Don McAllister wasn't content to use just the built-in keystrokes. He created a set of macros with the awesome automation tool Keyboard Maestro, and not only shared them with his staff of tutors, he agreed to let me share them with you. Now, I'm going to admit that I've been blindly using a couple of his Keyboard Maestro shortcuts without actually walking through and understanding why they do what they do. Because I wanted to tell you about them, I figured I'd better study him a smidge first, and now I can see exactly what he's doing. Don learns keyboard shortcuts faster and more thoroughly than anyone I've ever met, and I can tell from his macros that they're simply strings of keystrokes already built into ScreenFlow, but he's stringing them all together. The two I use constantly when I'm recording, I'm going to call Ripple Delete Plus and Close Gap. Remember I told you that Command Delete will do a Ripple Delete? Well, Don's macro using the keystroke Command Shift R not only does a ripple delete, but it also moves the playhead back two seconds before the cut point and starts the video playing. This keystroke is such a speed up because 100% of the time you do a cut, you're going to want to go back and listen to your and to see how well you did the cut. So this is great because it takes you back two seconds and starts to play after it does the ripple delete. The second one I use really often is Close Gap. On occasion, you'll create clips on the timeline that have gaps between them. Whether you drag clips in with gaps between them intentionally, or you use a simple delete to create gaps, you'll be in this situation from time to time. You, in order to use this one, you put the playhead on the right side of the gap and you hit Don's keystroke. Like the previous macro, after the gap is eliminated, the playhead moves to the left by two seconds and the audio and video will play automatically. Once you realize that Don's macros are just a series of built-in keystrokes from ScreenFlow's shortcuts, maybe it'll tickle your brain into thinking about what more you can automate in ScreenFlow or your particular video editor. Now, Don has a couple of other macros, like ones to trim the beginning or end of a clip. All of these are downloadable at a link in the show notes if you think these might be helpful to you. I've tried to add enough comments to them to help you see how they work and maybe help you see how to create your own macros for speeding up your workflow. Now, these keystrokes are offered with no warranty of any kind, and I highly recommend that you review them before enabling them in Keyboard Maestro. You are, after all, downloading executable code from a link you found on the internet. You may think you can trust me, but don't trust me. Open them up, check them out first, create a test file, and test them on, on your, what you're playing with before you do production work so you understand exactly what they do. Now, by the way, Keyboard Maestro is $36, which might sound steep until you think about what your time is worth. Is it worth money to you? I'm not being snarky when I say that, but you can, if you can get more work done in less time, $36 is a very small price to pay. One of the most tedious things to watch in a video tutorial is when the instructor has to type some text. Invariably, they say the words very, very slowly trying to match their typing speed, or they may even read it out character by character as they painstakingly type. Or worse yet, they make typos and back up and correct it while you're watching. I can save your viewers some agony with a very simple yet elegant trick. I distinctly remember when I wrote to Don McAllister and asked him how the heck he typed so fast in his videos, all while very naturally saying what he was typing. That's when he explained the magic behind his typing. First, without moving the cursor or touching the keyboard, record yourself saying out loud what you're going to type. Then do the typing without talking. Type it as many times as you need to do until you do it once without making a mistake. Now you can have an audio track with your explanation followed by silence, and you can have a video track with nothing happening 
followed by the typing. So next what you do is you cut the motionless video out from under your voice and you replace it with the one correct video of you typing what you needed to type. Now the typing video will probably be longer than the audio clip. With ScreenFlow, you can change the speed of a video clip by holding down the Option key and dragging the length of the key of the clip to speed up or slow down the video. In the typing example, simply speed up the typing until it matches the length of your voice clip. You too will look like an amazingly quick typist and multitasker like Don McAllister. Not only does this look fantastic to the viewer, but it's also a much less stressful way to record. The biggest problem when recording a screencast is not when you do the wrong step on screen. It's when you do the right step, but you bungle the voiceover. There's a natural tendency to try to fix the bungled bit by stopping and re-recording just that little messed up audio piece and then trying to splice it in. It's hard to make a clean cut, and it's hard to get your voice exactly in the same tone and inflection as it would have been if you'd said it correctly. These cuts are nearly always very noticeable to the ear, and there's a much easier way to do it that sounds great. When I mess up what I'm saying, I immediately let go of the keyboard and trackpad, I wait a heartbeat or two, and I repeat the last long phrase I tried to say, hopefully correctly this time. Sometimes it takes me quite a few times. Now, since I've literally just said it, albeit incorrectly, I automatically speak with the exact same cadence and tone. Even if I bumble the voice over a second or even a third time, I can say it until I get it exactly right as long as I've let go of the keyboard and the trackpad. Now, I've got good video, followed by good audio, time to line them up. The steps in editing are essentially the opposite of what we did with the magic typing. Now we've got the steps being executed in the video track with the bumbled audio, and then we've got static video with the corrected audio. I, cut, I just cut the bumbled audio, replace it with the good audio, and then delete all of the video that was recorded while I was re-recording the audio bit. This method is the least amount of effort and the audio sounds perfectly smooth. I may have to, you know, stretch or shrink the video to match the audio, but with the option drag method, that's very, very easy to do. One of the most valuable tools in screencasting is Freeze Frame, and it's available in both ScreenFlow and Screenium, the two tools I've used recently, so it's probably available in the tool you have. I've often recorded a great segment and the audio is perfect, but then I remember something I forgot to say. I simply split the video and audio tracks and I drag them apart so you have a nice wide gap to talk. I record the audio that I forgot. Now select the video track that stops right before the gap. In ScreenFlow from the menu bar, find clip and then add freeze frame or memorize the keystroke command shift F. I guarantee you that learning this keystroke might be the most important one of all. Well, no, right after ripple delete. So anyway, I've got my, my cursor on the right edge right before the gap and I hit Command-Shift-F. Now this freeze frame is gonna be very short, maybe one to two seconds, depending on the defaults you set in your preferences. But since it's not moving video, you can simply grab the end of it and shrink or grow the length until it fits exactly where your inserted audio needs to go. Now I'm not sure every tool has this next capability, but with ScreenFlow, you can add narration without doing a full screen and voice recording. With the narration option, the video plays while you record just your voice, so you can see what's happening while you're talking through the steps. I still think it's better to use my previous tip if you can, again, because your voice will be identical. However, there are always times when you're going to be playing back a recording and you realize you said iPhoto instead of photos, or worse yet, you said iPhotos, or maybe you say Parallels Desktop instead of Parallels Toolbox. You know, not that I've ever made similar mistakes myself, of course. Anyway, I recommend setting the playhead a bit earlier than where you messed up, and just don't start talking until right where you want to cut in the audio. I've tried to start my narration with the record head right at the cut point, but I have to jump in so quickly that I usually cut off the beginning of my recording and I have to do it again. You're going to do a lot of narration, so you might as well learn the keystroke for it. It's command option semicolon in ScreenFlow to start narration. The cool thing about using the narration option in ScreenFlow is that you don't have to get it right the first time because it's very easy to re-record a narration. If you flub the line when re-recording, hit the spacebar to stop, and ScreenFlow will ask you, do you want to keep it or reject the narration? If you hit reject, it puts the playhead right back where you had it before, so it's ready for you to record again. In ScreenFlow 9, if you use the spacebar to stop the narration recording, which is the normal way to stop recording in many applications, 
It actually locks up ScreenFlow, so you have to force quit it and restart it. Now, I just downloaded ScreenFlow 10, and it looks like they finally fixed that bug, so you can use the spacebar or the cursor to stop recording a narration. If the new audio track is longer than the flubbed audio, this is a great place to use our freeze frame trick to extend the video to make it long enough for the audio. If the space you need to fill with the freeze frame is more than one second when you apply a freeze frame, it may cause the video track to, uh, to the right to drop down to a lower track, and that can be disconcerting and could cause errors when you're trying to put it back. Now, GF Brissett suggests that a way to control this is to move the video to the right down a track yourself before inserting the freeze frame. Then it's easy to stretch or shrink the freeze frame to match the available gap and only then bring the right video track back up to where it belongs. I know that's kind of an advanced trick, but I sure wish I'd thought of that a very long time ago. I wasted so much time watching that right track jump down and try to figure out how to get it back up to where I wanted to control it. Now, what do you do if the inserted audio you did with the narration is shorter than the flubbed audio? Your video is going to be too long. Here's where you use the trick we learned when talking about speed typing. Simply hold down the Option key and drag the right edge of the video clip to the left until it speeds up to match your audio. Now, this advice will only work well if that video clip isn't too long and you don't have to change it by much. If you try to speed up, say, like a three-minute video track, the audio to your left will be out of sync with your video, so use this tip carefully and check your work. By the way, I'm very excited that I found this uh, narration option in ScreenFlow because I actually got to teach Don McAllister about it. That made me happy. Well, I hope at least some of the tips and tricks I've described will help you speed up your workflow in making screencasting tutorials. If you have some tips you want to share, I am all ears. I learn something new every day with screencasting, and anything you can do to teach me to help me make better videos faster will be very much appreciated. And many thanks to J.F. Brissett and Don McAllister for spoon-feeding me so many of these ideas over the years and helping me be more efficient and effective in my screencasting. Well, luckily for my voice and for everybody listening, that is going to wind us up for this week. Hopefully, uh, by next week, I should have a good, uh, a good enough voice. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, everything is fiddly recordings, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to become a patron? Podfeed.com slash Patreon. Want to do a PayPal one-time donation? podfeed.com slash PayPal. Want to join our community? You can do that in Facebook at podfeed.com slash Facebook or podfeed.com slash Slack if you hate Facebook. Or if you like Facebook, you can do them both. It's a lot of fun in there in both of them. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, except not next week, not on the 25th, we will not be live, but the following week you can, you can head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed. And I am now going to get a hot toddy.